Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. This is part two of our discussion of extras. If you haven't listened to part one already, better go back and check that one out first because we've already begun our discussion. We've talked quite a lot about Ricky Gervais already, although we will be doing a lot more of that in this episode as well. But if you're all caught up and ready to go, let's jump in. We're just about to continue our discussion on the characters of Darren Lamb and Barry from EastEnders. Let's get into it. But just to get back to uh, Darren and Barry, I think it's a lovely little partnership. They obviously really clicked, which is why it works. Mm. What about Sean Williamson? Because this this is great. I mean, this is self-awareness and self-mocking. It's beautifully self-deprecating, isn't it? It's brilliant. And and he was was in EastEnders for 10 years, so 94 to 2004. So this was not long after that. It was like 2006. But he'd had long enough to go, everyone still remembers me as Barry from EastEnders. I haven't managed to create a career Mm. (laughs) outside of that yet. But yeah, look, is that hangdog expression that he has on the whole time, isn't it? <laughs> Just so yeah, sweet. Yeah. Actually, one thing that I thought was interesting, I, I quite like a change that he has in series two. In that, in series one, he is what we see here is just this caricature dog's body. Um, whereas in series two, there's a few moments where he can relate to what Andy Millman is going through because he's been yeah. there and he can sort of see what's coming. And there are a couple of moments where he sort of, you know, he speaks to Andy directly and, and he comes out of character and he's like, you know, be careful. And he's trying to give him advice. Yeah. And there are only a couple of fleeting moments, but I think that's a nice bit of yeah. character growth. No, yeah, I like that. He's, he's, he's the warning sign of, of, of career uh, failure, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I'm playing the lead character. Are you sure that? Because he's really versatile. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Sure and I'm not. I'm not sure what it is you can do, but you know Barry can do all sorts. Do you serious? You do love me, Janine. You do. I know you do. Yeah. Do you comical? Pat, you trod on me foot. Get off. He's a singer as well. Mustang Sally. It's loud, isn't it? Uh, but obviously they use that so that Andy Millman kind of goes, okay, I need to protect the career and sell out because otherwise yeah. I might end up on the scrap heap. Which I think is 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 actually a really good point, and it's something that. I wish, again, I just wish it was explored a little less superficially and a little more deeply. There is a, a difficult balance to be found of like, do you just do the work do you, or do you, do you do what you want to do? Do you try and pursue your goals and at the risk of losing something? Because when we first meet Andy, we establish he worked in a bank or something like that and he's made his money, yeah. he's paid off his house and so he's slightly later in life he's gone i'm gonna pursue my dream of being an actor but he's basically got nothing to lose so when we get in series two we give him something to lose then he gets caught up in this oh well i don't know i don't want to do this i want to do this but then okay well i've got to do this and but it never goes past that first conversation of do you want to sell everything out and be a clown an idiot on tv or do you want to lose everything like those are the two options and 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 I just wish there was a bit more nuance to these things. I guess <laughs> in general, this whole this whole show. Well, well, let's just stick in our scene. So we talked about Barry from EastEnders. What about Darren Lamb then, the agent? So mm. as we said, it's kind of played for laughs. But the the problem I have with this character is he's he's, he's too incompetent. It's inconceivable that anyone would stay with him unless they had no choice. Yeah, and there's a lot of crap agents out there, you know. But mm. they're also the people they've got on their books either don't know any better or haven't got any other kind of choice. And you could certainly put Andy into that category. 
But Andy clearly knows better. He, yeah. he knows that he, this guy's crap. And again, that's what I mean. Yeah. The problem with Andy, the character, and Andy, the actual character traits that he shows. He's far too self-aware yeah. for the, that this character should be. One of the things about Andy Millman is that he always thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. Mm. But he's not. He's an idiot, just like everybody else. Yeah. But because he's so cynical, he can't even be happy with that. What's well, the the Laurel and Hardy dynamic, isn't it? There's there's the idiot, and then the idiot who thinks he's better uh, yeah, than the other yeah. one. Yeah. So yeah, that's the kind of that's the Andy and Maggie <laughs> dynamic, I suppose. Yeah, and that's really also the Darren Lamb and Barry from EastEnders uh, mm. dynamic as well. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good comparison. Just to 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 move on with our plot, then I guess. What happens is that Patrick Stewart has passed this script, actually passed this script on to someone at the BBC Mm -hmm. and they like it. It's all kind of totally unbelievable and it doesn't make any sense. And then all of a sudden, an unknown writer is having a meeting at the BBC to not only have his script produced, but also star in it himself. Doesn't, I mean, there's no reality to that. Talk about it. (laughs) <laughs> just there's just i mean as much as these guys had a you know a, a really big success and all that they like we talked about their careers already they they toiled and wrote sketches and got to know people and made connections mm. and and then kind of went okay uh, do you want to do this here's a script and the other problem with that is we have never seen andy millman write anything we've never seen him be funny uh, or creative mm. <laughs> in any real way but, the, you know, there are moments when he's talking to Maggie where it's like he'll go off on a little riff and he's being funny. So, like, yeah. okay, we can believe that. But why have we never seen anything like this? We've never seen him struggle. And this goes for the second series as well. All the problems he has in the second series is about selling out as an actor. We never see him have any problems with, oh, God, I've got to sit down and write a script. I've got to come up with some good ideas here. Yes. And all of a sudden, like, oh, well, we want six episodes. Oh, God, maybe I can do that. He never struggles with, oh, I'm in, I'm suddenly in a scene with... Lisa Tarbuck and, and other professional actors, and I've never. But done that's anything. because the, I... the, the 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 certainly series two. It, it's about celebrity. It's about yeah. fame. It's not about the craft. It's not about the work. It's about the 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 effect of the work. But the series one is the same. It's not. It's never about the work. Andy Millman never questions if he's good at being an actor mm. or anything. Mm. He is obviously the best actor in the world <laughs> yeah i would think he does think that. that that you know that's not the point of the show is it the point of the show is about it's about celebrity it's about how that impacts on the world and how the little mm. people can interact with celebrity and how it changes you yeah i guess it is i guess it is but that feels very superficial but i guess that's what celebrity is mm. also it because they they obviously just wanted to do two series and a special but it feels like it's way too much of a ramp. It's far too quick. It would be nice to just see Andy getting a couple of acting mm. roles and all of a sudden having a bit of success and then maybe having to do extra work anyway because needs to pay the rent or whatever. And 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 but mm. now it really is beneath him and he feels it and he doesn't want people to see him and and all this sort of stuff. Well, and, as you said earlier, we see we saw he had he, he the panto with Les Dennis. Yeah, but then that's sort of never referenced again, you know. Because because he thinks that's beneath him, mm. so he, he he wouldn't want to talk about that. But that's that that's paid work acting. That's what it's you wanted. Work. Yeah. yeah. Let's jump back into the episode because now forget Andy Millman the extra. He is now Andy Millman the the writer of a of a great sitcom, and he goes just walks into a meeting with Ian Morris, who is the head of new comedy at the BBC. Mm-hmm. And then they bring another producer called Damon Beasley. So Ian Morris and Damon Beasley. Yes, we know those <laughs> names, don't we? Yes. So. <laughs> 
most famous for the in-betweeners, but, you know, have worked in comedy for the last 25 years, uh, particularly at Channel 4, in, in which they were involved with the 11 o'clock show, the Ricky Gervais show, uh, Comedy Lab, <laughs> which all stuff that they knew. Mm. So we've talked about Ian Morris and Damon Beasley at length when we talked mm. about the in-betweeners. My question is, are these two characters, well, how close are they to the Because <laughs> I don't know Ian Morris and Damon Beasley. Is this, is this real? Oh, I've I've seen interviews with Ian Morris and Damon Beasley, and there appears to be no correlation whatsoever. Okay. I think I think it's just a is little this just Ricky thing. Gervais having a little bit of uh, a little bit of homophobic fun with his friends. Well, that's it. You know, he's obviously just gone like, oh, we have got these producers. Let's name them after some producers that we're friends with, and let's make them gay. That's funny, isn't it? And I think you know, in a two thousand six world, that's that's enough. That's just banter. Mm. But yeah, it's Maybe. just obviously just yeah. a little name, yeah. a name nod. And this is before they did the in betweeners, so they weren't quite as sort of. Well, they were just backroom producers that your general public wouldn't know the name of. So uh, that was for, I certainly didn't know the name mm. the first time I saw it. So we get this first meeting with the producers and they basically go, we love it, but, you know, it needs a bit of structure. You're not an experienced writer. So we're bringing someone in. They bring a script doctor in and that's Ricky Gervais and this script doctor, Damon Beasley, are going to work together uh, and, and try and patch this mm. thing up. And that's the first step towards him losing control over it. Yes, yes. So in that scene... He's describing what he wants to make and his vision. He's, he's mm. describing the office. He, he's describing yeah. what the office was. Yeah. And, and that's the last moment that we hear that. Mm. As you say, that's, that's the moment where he starts to lose control and we end up with this broad when the whistle blows as a result. Again, at this point, he's obviously like sticking to his principles. Like, there's no way an unknown first-time writer would go into a, a meeting with the BBC and say anything other than anything you want to do, I I will do it. <laughs> because mm -hmm. you know, you might you might then try and temper it in the process, but in that first meeting, you just go, "What do I have to say to get you to give me a chance?" Yeah. And that's what Darren Lamb is there for. Yeah, <laughs> he's just like going, "We'll change anything you want." Um, he's yeah. he's not bothered. There's a really funny scene where where Ricky Gervais says, "I think all the best things are all turd, huh, turd, funny." <laughs> <laughs> no, all right, just the worst person to have <laughs> in the meeting with you. <laughs> and then, obviously, the other thing that we set up from here is that the character of Damon Beasley is super gay. Is he having a laugh? Are you having a laugh? <laughs> Brilliant, we're having that. That's yeah. super, that's funny, do it again. That's what he, that's what he used to do, he used to go to someone and go, it, all, every time. Are you having a laugh? Are you having a laugh? <laughs> <laughs> that's great, that'll be a catchphrase. Okay, so, so let's address this then. Ricky Gervais has made a reputation for himself since, and before actually, as a kind of shock comedian saying the unsayable. Mm. The question really is, is Ricky Gervais homophobic? Or is he just doing a really good, ironic impression of someone who's homophobic? Well, I have to say, as someone who, I know it doesn't particularly sound like it from what I've been saying, but I'm a fan of Ricky Gervais. Uh, certainly his, his sense of humor. I like his material. I tend to like his stand-up and stuff like that. And he does go very near the knuckle on a lot of things, um, ho uh, homosexuality mm. being one of them. But for me, he always falls on the right side of the line, as in he knows what he's saying and why he's saying it. Yeah. And that that layer of irony is intact for me. Mm. I can appreciate it might not be if you're coming from a slightly different perspective and you've got to be careful with that sort of thing. But I also think that comedy should be on the edge. It should be near the knuckle and that's okay. 
I think the the price you pay for that is, you know, people look at it 15, 20 years later and it might mm. might not hold up that well. Sure. But that's all right. That's okay. And I think you've got to be accepting that people can move on. I think if you're doing the same material 20 years later and you know full well that it's not working anymore, uh, uh, that it's not hitting in the same way anymore and you don't care, mm. that's different. But if you can move with the times and start sort of joking about something else, like wherever the cutting edge is now, that's fine. I'm not going to look back at someone else, someone's old material and judge them too harshly for that. That's a good point. You know, I, I look at the, I look at, I watched this episode and thought, oof, ooh, it sort of jarred me. But I don't remember thinking that in 2005, 2006, mm. whenever it was. So, so perhaps you're right that times have changed since then. I, I've gone off Ricky Gervais because mm. I think that's probably why, you know, I, I've changed, society has changed, and I'm not sure that he has, really. And I think yeah. that maybe he's not become worse, but the line has moved, and he hasn't yeah. moved with it. This is something we deal a lot with on this show, yeah. obviously, because yeah. we're looking at kind of old comedy. And I think it's it's just inevitable, and I think there, there comes a point where you can't move with the goalposts anymore, or you certainly you struggle to, and you either just keep your mouth shut... But if you want to stay relevant yeah. and kind of still be that cutting edge, shocking comedy, mm. then it becomes more difficult. Like you look at Jimmy Carr material from 20 years ago and it's like, you wouldn't say that these days. And Jimmy Carr wouldn't say that these days. I think Jimmy Carr's a really interesting example and relevant because as you said, they have worked together 20 years ago. So I, I, I was a big Jimmy Carr fan, but I've been to see him half a dozen times. And the last time I went to see him, which was, I don't know, three or four years ago, I kind of thought, I, th I think I'm done with this. Mm. And it's not because he's not funny. It's just because it's like, oh, it's not nice. It's unpleasant. And again, maybe it's me that's changed, but mm. it just feels like, ugh. okay, I laughed out loud a lot of times in that hour, but then there were several times where I, I didn't like, I felt uncomfortable. And, you know, you don't want to pay 30 quid for that. And when you're the likes of a Jimmy Carr or a Ricky Gervais, it's very difficult to look at what you're doing and the huge success you're having mm. and everyone on Twitter going, oh, afterlife is the best thing. My mum's dead. And I felt something when I was Thank you for it. inventing grief. Yeah. And it's impossible to be in that world and then kind of go, well, obviously I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm doing the right thing and I'm going to keep doing it. You're not going to go, hang on, let me just step back and go, uh, what, what's the situation here? Yeah. Maybe I need to move with the goalposts. Okay, so so let's get back into our episode. We were talking about the the meeting at the BBC. Now, so he's got his pilot, and immediately the next scene, he goes back to the set with all the extras and just gloats and lays it on way too thick. It's it's yeah. too much. It's way it's too much. It's, it's unpleasant. It's just it's a nasty really piece of work. It's really unpleasant. It's Andy Melman being an unsympathetic dick. And you kind of want him to get his comeuppance because he's so mm. rude to these people, the little people. Yeah, because if he did that to Greg, it would be fine. Yes. Because Greg does it to him, and so it's his chance to have a little revenge. But he just does it to these random, pe these extras, frankly, the, these random people that, and and also people that he obviously doesn't know. And he, because when he goes on set, he just talks to Maggie, and he doesn't talk to people, and he's kind of miserable mm. and dour. And and yeah. and so where does this come from? They don't they don't even know him. They're like, aren't you that bloke? You've been here a few days, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. What's yeah, happened? Yeah. Why are you slagging? But it's off? all he's got. It's all. Yeah. They're the only people that he can sneer at. Yeah, he's moved, he's, it, he's moved really one step up the ladder and already he's sneering at the people on the step below yeah. that he's just stepped up from. And that's that's his character in a nutshell, really, isn't it? Yeah, very unpleasant. And yeah, completely unsympathetic. And from that point, I want him to fail. I, I was sodgy, you know. I hope you're back yeah. here next week humiliated. <laughs> yeah, so, so the next scene, we go back to the BBC and we get a montage. We get a writing montage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
as, uh, and we see a lot of uh, Damon being camp um, and, and kind of just irritating Andy and you can see him sort of wincing as Damon laughs loudly and uproariously mm. and that sort of thing. So we're sort of building this image. And this is why I think this kind of falls on the right side, like we were saying there, because, you know, this guy is very annoying and, and camp. And if you were trapped in a small room with him, yeah. you can see how that would be annoying. Doesn't have to be gay, though. You could, you, could, you could have that without him being gay. But that character, he's very camp, and that's what we associate with gay. And Andy Millman, that person, in 2006, describing that as super gay is not mm. homophobic. It's not yeah. supposed to be an insult in that I, sense. I, I, it's I just that. like... What he means is super camp, but back then and even yeah. now, that was the same thing. That was people conflated that, and so it's not about him being gay; it's about him being annoying. But the problem with that is you can't explain that after the fact. You can't say no, and I'm not bothered about your gay. It's just that you're really annoying. So no offense, right? <laughs> like you, you, you have to backpedal on it all. I'm not a homophobe. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just a not a nice bloke. <laughs> I just think you're really irritating. Uh, because uh, ultimately he has to make nice with these people, even if he doesn't like them. Even if he was homophobic, he has to get his, get this script made. Yeah. He has no choice. He has yeah. no power in this situation. Well, I'll tell you what, but let me just... I know, I'm sorry to bang the homophobia drum, but let's just... Oh, can we just jump off to the episode with Ian McKellen? The gay panic episode. Yeah, so this is in the second series. He's trying to be a serious actor. Yeah, I think this episode, this bit has aged definitely a lot more. <laughs> the, yeah, the gay I think panic it's really is. bad. So we get we get this idea that there's a it's the, the play is about a gay relationship, the play within the show. And there's supposed to be a kiss at the end, but there's not a kiss and then at the last minute they say they want him to do this kiss and he doesn't want to do it because he's mm. well he don't want to do it because he's school bullies in the audience, but mainly because, you know, he's freaked out by gays. Then we get a scene where they're trying to do the kiss. It's on stage. It's really awkward. He's trying to pull away. And we see Sir Ian McKellen. We see Sir Ian McKellen's hand come from off stage, pushing the back of his head. A knight of the realm. It's uncomfortable, but we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be getting a laugh, not from the fact that homosexuals are predatory, but from Andy Millman's insecurity about that. An awkwardness, but, yeah. But the, but Gervais pushes this too far because he betray- the fear here is not born of in, of his insecurity. It's real. He's been physically res- restrained and tried to do something against his will. It's saying yeah. that Sir Ian McKellen and these gay actors are predatory. That is what the, that is explicitly what the show is saying. And just on a on a comedic level, I feel like it goes too far like if we have him there on stage and an actor and he has to be kind of you know close or intimate with another man he feels uncomfortable about that especially because Mm. certain people are watching ricky gervais can display awkwardness and and mild uncomfortableness like he's good at that so Mm. why do we have him literally physically pushing him away kind of looking to the audience and going oh god don't don't touch me like a breaking character Mm. and then literally just stops the play and goes, look, sorry, I can't do this play because it's a bit gay and I, I didn't want to do that. Sorry. Yeah. Like the, the most unprofessional thing you could do as an actor. Again, that's just like, as an actor, you would not do that, even if you were uncomfortable. And I think you would get a lot more, you would get a lot more humor out of it if he was just awkward and didn't know how to deal with the situation and then had to get out of it in some very mm. subtle way. I'll try and make but it But that look wouldn't like a be as choice. excruciating for us to watch. And that's the point of... That's the point I of, it of would, all though. Ricky Gervais' comedy. It's it's that painful, excruciating, oh my God, awkwardness. I th- but I think it could be. And, and and just in terms of the kind of the homophobia of the whole situation, which I think is there, what I, I like about this in a way is that we preface it with 
it's not just within Andy, it's the external conflict of his old friends, mm. his old schoolmates, who are a lot more working class and kind of typically what you would expect to be homophobic. Yeah. It's got that element. It's not just an internal conflict of like, oh God, I don't want to be gay. So I think it gives him that license to to do more with that. And it's something that perhaps is more relatable, you know, how we appear to be rather than how we really think inside. And I, I think that comes from Ricky Gervais, you know, this very working class, you know, kid who then, yeah. you know, started wearing makeup uh, as in, <laughs> in the 80s because he mm. wanted to mm. be um, like David Bowie and, and, and all that sort of thing. And the sort of the, that conflict that he must have dealt with at that point and his family, you know, mocking him for it and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so I think it's kind of coming from that place. But I, the, the, I think part of the problem is that that doesn't really tally with what we've got here of Andy Millman. We've never really seen anything of his background. So we suddenly have this thrust upon us. This old school friend who's a bit of a bit more of a, you know, um, a man's man. And so he has to try and live up mm. to that. But then the the little supporting crowd they get to come to represent, the, you know, the boys are like, you know, it's like a, a casting agent. Like we need people to they've committed a bank robbery and they're living on the Costa del Sol. Uh, can you cast that for me, please? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a bit all it, everything about this. The second series, it's all just one step too far, mm-hmm. just two on the nose, just one, one. But that that school far. bully character, he he likes that. We we've seen that character again in Afterlife, different actor, but it's the same character. Those two guys that appear every so often, and they're just really, yeah. really um, raucous and insulting and lewd. I yeah. think I think that's a that's a nice little Gervais uh, writing trick, so that he can say the worst things, you know. Mm. Ricky Gervais, like I said, brought up on a council estate, you know, did philosophy degree at uni, you know, it's like he he, mm. he was open to these influences. I think he's got a really interesting background that is not just the typical middle class BBC Oxbridge bubble. Mm. And I think he can bring something to that. And yeah. I never, I never really feel like I see that, you know, I never, I don't know if I ever really get a sense of that. You know, there was so many years, you bear in mind he became famous when he was in his late 30s and there were so many years before where he was living with his his partner in a crappy little bed sit yeah you know just struggling to get by she was a struggling sort of trying to become a tv producer and all this Mm. sort of stuff i never feel like i see any of that in his work i only ever see i'm ricky gervais and i'm the center of attention and i'm hilarious aren't i and everybody likes me uh, so I, I don't know. It just I, I feel frustrated somehow with it all. So, so all right. So let's go. But let's go, stick back with the episode. So um, we've had the writing montage, and he goes off on a cappuccino run, <laughs> uh, and Maggie turns up. So she's sort of trying to do the right thing. She bumps into Damon, and she says, "Just tone it down a bit, you know." And she really does try her best to handle it well, <laughs> but her best isn't good enough, and she obviously <laughs> drops him in it. But that again, this is what we see from Maggie. Every episode, she just does this to mm. one degree or another. In the later episode, she manages to do it at the BAFTAs, and he is humiliated in front of a live audience. <laughs> and yeah, so that's yeah. all they're doing is just ratcheting up the audience level. <laughs> who embar- he embarrasses himself in front of. Uh, but there's, but yeah, I mean, this happens all the time. You know, in the is it the first episode where she's racist to, to someone? You know, accidentally, and then there's another episode where. She's aware that she might be racist and doesn't know it, so she gets freaked mm. out by that. <laughs> yeah. All these little elements, like 
she's always just saying the wrong thing and with with total innocence. Yeah, but we we then get a little bit of Maggie pathos. So you know, because mm. because now Andy's doing really well, he's sort of leaving her behind. So we see her in her place as a voicemail from her parents saying, "It's about time you sorted yourself out." <laughs> I quite like the set, by the way. Her Maggie's flat, you know, this sort yeah. of bohemian squalor, just stuff lying around. I also noticed there was an Orlando Bloom poster on the wall, which is interesting foreshadowing for the second series. Well, yeah, because obviously she's got an Orlando Bloom poster. She must like Orlando Bloom. The whole point of the Orlando Bloom episode is that she has no interest in him, despite despite him being full of himself. Uh, Bit of a a continuity error there. Yes, I thought so. (laughs) So just while we're talking about Maggie, let's talk about that character in a little bit more detail. Okay. I, I like the character. Like we said, I think it's a great performance. I think she's kind of the secret weapon of the show because she's so likable. Mm. But my problem with it, and this particularly goes in the second series, is that she's never really given any agency of her own. She's it's she's just mm. there to for Andy to provide emotional pathos to Andy. And that is particularly egregious, I think, in the in the very in the finale. Yes, we we see it here. This is the first sign we get we get of anything really of a background or why she's doing what mm. in this episode because she gets this call from her parents saying like oh you know you you know you haven't actually done anything with your life do you think that might be a, make you a failure and she has to sort of question these things and she manages to sort that out by you know tidying up and straightening her hair so job done yeah (laughs) but then like the next series we still don't know she has one friend and he's getting too busy to spend as much time with her and then in that finale we know she's absolutely hit rock bottom because get this gareth she's working as a cleaner oh no there's nothing worse she's having to work a menial (laughs) job to pay her way through life and she lives in a flat that's imagine not that good in London. Um, yeah, well, there's a whole scene where she's she has, she you know, there's an estate agent showing around her this bedsit. I I I understood the point of the scene. Like this is squalor. <laughs> this is how low we've come. But I also thought, yeah, I've lived in worse. I've lived in worse than that. <laughs> Definitely, I have. Yes, <laughs> especially in London. Yeah, that's pretty, yeah, that's probably about eight hundred a month. That. Yeah. <laughs> and but but you know, I it would be fine. She's struggling and she's not happy with what she's doing, but. I always feel like it's not about her. It's about Andy. Yeah. We have to make her miserable so that at the end, the emotional payoff of all that Andy is save her. Andy comes back into her life and her life is complete. That is yeah. the message we get from that. Ricky Gervais saves the world. One damsel at a time. Apart from being a very weak service to the character that is a good character and a good actor, it's just crap, isn't it? It's just bad writing. It's just, there's no depth we, to it. We have it. a very, very clear idea of what Andy wants and and how he is failing to get it. Yeah. We never really know what Maggie wants, mm. other than that she feels like a failure. But what is, you know, to, against what is she measuring herself? And the problem with that is she's not just a side character who can be that. We don't we don't know what Darren Lamb wants really, mm. and we don't. It doesn't matter. But if you're going to use her for that emotional journey, then it has to have some depth, or yeah. it, the way you've established that character needs more, and and it's completely lacking. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the biggest, my biggest frustrations with the later series and that finale. Which is, it's a nice moment, the big emotional climax and they get together at the end kind of thing. And But it's not earned. And it's something you see, certainly in Ricky Gervais's later work, uh, unearned emotional yeah. climax, certainly. Oh God, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, so Ashley Jensen then. Yeah, tell me about Ashley Jensen, because as I say, I think I am a little bit in love with her. So tell me more. <laughs> 
Well, you know, she she was certainly working before this. This is obviously what made her name, but she's pretty much the embodiment of that jobbing actor, kind of just mm. loads of TV, bit here, bit there, you know, working. But you wouldn't put a name to the face. You wouldn't sort of say, oh, that's that person. And, and so this was her big break, really. And she was, you know, well into her 30s at this point. It was it, so, you know, pretty old by acting standards to be kind of making a suddenly becoming a star. She won Best Newcomer at the British Comedy Awards. So, you know, they considered her a newcomer. She had about 40 Mm -hmm. credits before that, but, you know. (laughs) And then she went on to do Ugly Betty after that. That was like her next big thing. She went over and broke America. Ah, that's right. I remembered she'd been in America, yes. Yeah, but, but, okay, so, yeah, you broke America. But then what? Because Ugly Betty obviously came to an end. I, I, I can't really think of anything else I've seen her in. She was in an American sitcom called Accidentally on Purpose, playing like the best friend of the main woman. And that was about these two people who, you know, accidentally get pregnant and then have to live with each other or try and make it work. And she's like the best friend. Is that Catastrophe? Uh, No, but it is exactly the same plot as Catastrophe, yes. Except, uh, but, and then, so then she does the same thing in Catastrophe. That's a few years later. Yeah, I watched a little bit of that American sitcom and it just felt like the most basic, bland American crap. Mm. Uh, Yeah. And, And then the Catastrophe... It's basically the same concept as far as I can tell, but just done by better people. Mm. Also something in 2013 called Love and Marriage. Uh, you know, she's on that. Uh, she's in Afterlife, isn't she? She's um, sort of as of a semi-regular uh, thing. Of course she is. And most recently, she has been Agatha Raisin. Oh, yeah? Does that mean anything to you? No. I was hoping you'd know what that is because you're much more in tune with recent TV than I am. I haven't watched TV for a long time. But Agatha Raisin is some kind of light-hearted detective thing. And know, she is but she's the principal in it. She is Agatha Raisin. So it's it's a lead role. Okay. I think it's one of those daytime detective things. Back to our episode. Sure. Uh we're getting towards the end now. So there's a big sort of summit meeting where Ian Morris sits Andy Millman down and takes him to task about this homophobia and apologizes. He backtracks and he's really sorry. And he is really sorry, but he has messed up. This is all his fault. <laughs> Everything's turned out right. So now we can resolve the thing with Maggie. Mm. So how does that play out? He just goes up to Maggie and doesn't actually apologize. Gets Patrick Stewart to do it for him. <laughs> yeah, he gets Patrick. It gets a voicemail from Patrick Stewart. So I mentioned this earlier. Like, what did Patrick Stewart? Did they write this in later? Because surely they could have got Patrick Stewart to record that while he was doing the other scene. Like they could have all sat down in Patrick Stewart's trailer and had that. Scene. <laughs> why is he? Why is he holding a phone out and playing this recording? Like, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's it's supposed to be sometime later. They're not on the same set anymore. Uh, I don't know. But maybe. But they they obviously filmed all that at Pinewood Studios. That Patrick Stewart in a trailer could have been filmed anyway. It was, we only ever see him in the trailer. Oh, so they could have gone to him. You mean? Yeah, he could have been, who knows where he might have been. Yeah, so that's our episode, really. Everything's fine. Maggie's now suddenly, they're friends again. They literally walk off into the sunset. Which, again, it's just what happens at the end of the finale as well. It's just mm-hmm. what happens at the end of David Brent, A Life on the Road. <laughs> what happens yeah. at the end yeah, of quite. most of Ricky Gervais. You've got a formula, you stick to it, mate. <laughs> you know, I think I've been fairly negative, but ultimately I enjoy it and I find most of it quite funny. And even when it's not, trying to be funny it, it it still hits the right beats it just it just feels a bit unearned uh, i think yeah. when it tries to yeah. be emotional there's a level of indulgence they kind of like okay well this is working let's do oh, more yeah. of this 
And and no one is going to Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant and saying, no, don't do that. Or here's yeah. some advice. You just say, here's the money, get the job done. I think I think that's my problem with Ricky Gervais is that he's, he's so self-indulgent. And yeah, no one's sort of, there's no break on that. Now, that's not really a problem because millions of people love it. Millions of people watching mm. it. And that's fine. People like different things. I say this every week. But but that's it, it's gone away from me, I think. Yeah. You know, that's not that's not necessarily a bad thing. People need to make what they want to make, and that's that's okay. But I think you you even see it. We talked about the difference between series one and two. And I think series one works really well. You know, it's a little bit self-indulgent, but but the novelty of having those celebrities, it works really well. They're all playing caricatures themselves. But then it feels like Gervais just can't bear not being the star. And mm. so now he elevates himself so that he's he's on an equal level with these celebrity cameos. It feels like in the first series, he's an outsider and he's sort of poking fun at celebrity. Whereas in the second series, he's not the outsider anymore. He's nominated for a BAFTA. He's, he's, he's part yeah. of that establishment. But he doesn't fit in. And that's where the comedy comes from. But it's different comedy. The first series is an outsider. The, f- the second series is an uncomfortable insider. Mm. But does it make any difference to his character or the tone of comedy? Or, or is it just they've changed the situation? Uh, I, I think it does. I think it does. I don't. I don't like the second series anywhere near as much. And I think part of no, that I, is because true. because he's not. I was going to say he's not throwing rocks at the celebrity world. He is, but he's now. They're not landing in quite the same way because he's throwing them from a different place. God, I really went too far with that analogy. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I think that's generally how people feel about extras. The first series is much better. Yeah, it just feels like the second series they've gone, well, we like doing this, so we're going to do that more. And that doesn't necessarily translate to what works best in the final product. There's also, there's something that I would like to talk about that I've referred to as the Gervais problem, which is that so many people in in extras, and indeed in everything else that he does, are doing Ricky Gervais impressions. And after The Office, this was a real problem that infected British comedy for many years. People doing Ricky Gervais impressions, his mannerisms, his vocal styles. And you see that so much in extras. My my list here, I would say that Kate Winslet, Orlando Bloom, Keith Chegwin, Daniel Radcliffe, Chris Martin and Robert Lindsay are all explicitly doing Ricky Gervais. Doing that, well, yeah, doing that style of comedy. And obviously they've written it. Gervais and Merchant have written that. I, I think it's more than that, Alan. I think that Ricky Gervais, as a person, as, as a character, as in himself, is huge. I think he's a massive character. Oh, yeah. And anyone who's in his orbit, anyone who's hanging around with him, is going to start picking up his mannerisms because, because he's just bleeding them everywhere, you know? Mm. And I don't criticise him for that necessarily. I think that's just natural human empathy. You look at Daniel Radcliffe in this. I mean, he's still, he's still only, I think he was 17 when this was made. He's still only a kid. He's still making the Harry Potter films. Yeah, and I've got a lot of time for Daniel Radcliffe. He seems like he's got a good, uh, good sort of sense of humor. Yeah, himself. unless he's acting. Uh, yeah, and not a great actor, but that's not what. I mean. <laughs> but, but in this, he is just doing. He's just being Ricky Gervais. It's like imagine if Ricky Gervais was Harry Potter actor Daniel Radcliffe, and you yeah. know that that's that's what he's doing, and he does it well. He does, it's great. You know, it's not really a criticism, but it's like Woody Allen film. When Woody Allen got too old to play Woody Allen. He would get someone else in to play Woody yes. Allen. I remember one film, Kenneth Branagh played Woody Allen. It's 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 a bit like that. It's like, well, I can't, I can't Ricky, I, I can't be all twelve parts in this. I need to get someone else in to be this this Ricky character. And I think what Ashley Jensen brings to Maggie is not doing that because I think a lot mm, of the material is the same. I think saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, or or kind, of, I think a lot of the mannerisms could be there, and she brings something different to it. And I think that's why that works. Yes, I agree. Um, just before we leave extras, mm. 
can we have a little discussion about when the whistle blows? Yes. The sitcom within the sitcom. So this is, it's clearly, dis, di, it, the whole point of when the whistle blows is, this is what the office would have been if we'd let them, if we hadn't <laughs> maintained control of it. This broad audience catchphrase comedy, popular. But th- that's the interesting thing. You know, in the second series, Andy Millman's a star because this is one of the biggest shows on TV. Everybody who likes it is an idiot. Like that is yeah. clearly, we, we see fans, they're all portrayed as idiots. You know, David Earle is one of them. And, and there's a contrast there between this cult acclaimed comedy that The Office was. But how different is Ray Stokes to David Brent? <laughs> Like, if you asked a random person on the street what are the top three things you remember about The Office, one of those three things will be the dance. Yes. I mean, that yes. is pretty broad. Yes, but that's the thing. With The Office, that was something of an outlier, and it's obviously not what they're trying to do. They're not trying mm-hmm. to create catchphrases or, or funny moments. It's just that happened organically. But David Brent, looking to camera, fiddling with his tie... And make it doing his little vocal ticks that, that he did. I, I just don't think that's a million miles away from is he having a laugh or you having a laugh? My brains is so much happier now that he's out of the closet. Oh, I am. In fact, last night I went on a wonderful date with a lovely man. He took me to a seafood restaurant, fed me my favourite meal. Fished you? No, he certainly did not. <laughs> it was our first date. I didn't mean, did he? Fit? I mean, are you having a laugh? Is he having a laugh? But that's, I think that's perhaps why it works quite well. They, 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 they're writing from a place they know. They're obviously big comedy fans. And mm-hmm. we get some sort of full scenes of When the Whistle Blows in the show, which I really like. And they work because you don't watch it and go, oh, God, that's awful crap comedy. It made me laugh a couple of times. <laughs> it's just very broad. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of like you go, oh, I can see they're deliberately evoking a 70s style sitcom here mm-hmm. with the kind of just mm-hmm. very cliched stereotype characters. Yeah. But with enough of a knowing wink that you kind of go, okay, they're in on the joke, even if Andy Millman isn't, you know. And again, that's something else we just never see Andy Millman struggling to write. Do you know what really struck me, actually? I don't think at any point in extras we see Andy Millman talking to any of the other actors who are in When the Whistle Blows. I, I noticed that, that was being odd. There's a scene in um, Hair and Makeup where Lisa Tarbuck is, yeah. the, 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 the makeup person asks her for an autograph and she can't remember her name and there's a real awkward moment. And then Lisa Tarbuck walks out and there's a sort of eye contact and a nod between her yeah. and Ricky Gervais. And that's it. That's the only conversation. It's not even a conversation that we see between Andy Millman and any of the other people yeah. who are in When the Whistle Blows. When he's not Ray Stokes, yeah. And that's weird, isn't it? I don't know if I can't tell if that's deliberate and it's meant to say something about him not being part of this world, mm. or if it's just bad writing. <laughs> and they just <laughs> wanted to do this is the sitcom bit, and then this is Andy and Maggie talking over here. Uh, I don't know, uh, yeah. but it's 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 weird, and it just it doesn't make you like Andy certainly anymore. But yeah, as yeah. for that character, it's it's a ridiculous, over the top Ray Stokes comedy character. I, I like it. It's it's obviously come from a, a place of people who've watched a lot of old sitcoms and probably enjoy old sitcoms, but are, understand yeah. what they are and how they're silly. But then they do, there's a couple of moments where they obviously go a bit further and they do this kind of whole weird racist thing. Yeah. Yes, Mr. Yamaguchi. No, Mr. Yamaguchi. And can I just say one more time, I am very, very sorry. I mean, I mean very, very sorry. Yes, sir. Our souls to you too. Our souls to you too. Come on. 
like you there's no way a sitcom in 2006 on the bbc would have been doing that <laughs> so, hmm. the fact that there are there is so much footage of the sitcom where you see it actually as, as if it is a real sitcom hmm. and they've done a whole opening sequence for it and stuff like that they obviously yeah, yeah. i think with gervais and merchant they just love that construction and that whole thing and they, hmm. they're getting to play with that in a way that we can very much go, and we're doing it with a little nod of irony, so we understand that this is silly, but it means we can get it out of our system. The last thing I've got to say about my last criticism of uh, extras. We saw, as you said, you mocked earlier, that Maggie had really fallen from grace. The lowest of the low, she was having to work as a cleaner. Yes. But actually, that's not the lowest of the low. Because (laughs) after uh, Andy Millman sacks his agent, Darren Lamb and Barry from EastEnders are reduced to the ultimate indignity, <laughs> working in Carphone Warehouse. <laughs> yes. Now, this obviously rubbed me up the wrong way because I spent a long time in my 20s working in Carphone Warehouse. <laughs> and it's, I'm telling you, it's a noble career. <laughs> you know what? Both this and, for example, the Celebrity Big Brother stuff. Carphone Warehouse, it's mm. not... They're referred to as Carphone Warehouse. We see a shop front. They must have mm. had permission to do that. Yeah. So it's sort of like... Well, you know they're taking the piss, right? <laughs> and then I, I felt the same thing with the Celebrity Big Brother. You've got all these people in the Celebrity Big Brother house. And you've got, like, Toby Foster, who's obviously, like, playing a character. But then you've got Chico yeah. Time and Lionel, Lionel Blair. Blair. playing himself, yeah. And it's like, you know when he's slagging you off? Like, that is actually you, right? <laughs> like, that's not a character <laughs> you're playing. <laughs> like, you're playing yourself here and... He really slags them off and he's incredibly judgmental about other people's choices. Mm. And then he goes, I'm not judging you. I just think, you know, like, but he is entirely judging them and putting his own moral purpose on them. And there's a scene, there's a, there's a deleted scene on one of the DVDs, actually, which I wish was in where there's, there's one woman who's in the Celebrity Big Brother house who she was a a teacher and then she's become a model and she just does topless yeah. modeling and stuff like that. And he very, very much judges her for that on a moral position. That mm-hmm. is not a good way to earn money. And there's a deleted scene where he he's saying to her, like, what are you going to do when, you're, when your son like finds out about this? You know, one day one of his mates is going to come up and go, oh, look, there's your mum naked. What do you think he's going to say? And she says, well, I hope he says, yeah, do you have any idea how much she got paid for that? And look at her tits. They're better than your mum's, aren't they? Mm. Like, I, she's proud of what <laughs> she does. And she's using what she's yes. got to make a good living. But yeah. he is, all he sees is, well, you're just trying to be a celebrity, which she is. But it's a judgment. Mm-hmm. And it's a moral judgment. And it's one that is not questioned in the show. Andy makes those judgments and we all go along with it, even though mm. he's an unpleasant person. And I, I just wish there was a bit more of a, of a sort of pushback for all that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think, I think we've covered extras. Let's just, before we finish, we've talked a little bit about it, but what did Gervais and Merchant do afterwards? They did uh, Cemetery Junction. That was a film they did. Do you know what? I enjoyed that. I'd, I'd forgotten they made that film. I thought it was a really good film. Yeah, I haven't seen it probably since it came out. So I, I, I don't, can't really judge. But then their, their follow-up to, in terms of their sitcom lineage was Life's Too Short. With Warwick Davis, who we, who we see is one of the celebrity cameos in Extras. Yes, yes, that's right. I don't know if maybe that's the first time they worked with him and uh, liked working with him. And then after this point, Gervais and Merchant kind of went their separate ways and mm. I've never really quite worked out if they actually had a falling out or if they just drifted apart or, you know, I don't think they've got a lot of bad blood or anything. That's the impression I get. Not that there was a fallout, but perhaps a, you know, let's go and do our own things. You've been writing with Ricky Gervais for 15 years, sat in a little office with him writing stuff. Christ. Yeah. <laughs> 
Merchant went to America. What was the sitcom? Was it Hello Ladies? I watched a few episodes of that and it was, it was all right, but I never really got into it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's sort of based around this sort of persona he does. And there's some of that in Darren Lamb that is, you know, like a kind of mm. over the top ladies man, a kind of bit too much bravado when yeah. it's completely unearned. It's and it, 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 it comes very com- yeah. which comes from sort of Stephen Merchant's character as himself, mm. you know. And then Ricky Gervais, of course, took a step away from comedy to do Derek. <laughs> <laughs> So we've been talking for the last God knows how long we've been talking about this this idea of you know is it is it ironic abuse or is it is it unpleasant abuse and you know Derek is the the complete apotheosis of that like yeah. there are very much mixed opinions on if Derek is acceptable I I watched Derek and I admit that I I laughed and I cried it it got me but I, I'm not sure it's right I'm not sure it's I, I'm often quite uncomfortable as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I don't really get it. I think that's something that won't stand the test of time. In 15 years, that will not look good. Well, I watched some yesterday and yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. I said 15 years. How long ago was Derek? Uh, 2012 to 2014. So oh, yeah, it's already so sort of 10 years old. Yeah, but Derek, for me, it just feels like, yeah, it's okay to do a, a stereotype of this character because I'm he's a nice person. I'm not yeah. mocking him. It's with affection. Yeah, well, I don't know about yeah. that. Because and it, and and like in, if we're talking about Ricky Gervais's acting style, like what what is that? That's not. Yeah, it's bad, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, and then um, and then the big the big sort of thing that Ricky Gervais has done recently is Afterlife. Of course, we sort of three series mm-hmm. into that, and yeah. that's again become the biggest comedy ever in the world. So he's still churning it out. Like I say, it's popular, but I I well again I've watched every episode of Afterlife, so I can't I can't say oh it's rubbish. I never watched it. Uh, I have watched it and laughed. And cried. And, you know, it got me. But at the same time, I can see the joins and it's so self-indulgent. And I just think, God, this is this is really manipulative stuff. Yeah. And it feels like, yeah, that we not we know where all the beats are, but we don't mm. have a smooth journey between them. Uh, mm. And I think Stephen Merchant's a bit better with the, the structural stuff. But, uh, that, 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 you know, that might be it. That might be the, what he brings as a structure because there's, there's been several times in the last couple of hours where you've said unearned about things mm-hmm. in extras and, you know, suddenly, oh, you're a writer. We didn't know about that. And it's just that, that yeah, lacking that structure. Yeah. And and Stephen Merchant probably sees himself more as a director now than, than an actor. It wasn't even I think an X-Men film, thinking be. about Patrick Stewart. Yeah. Yeah, he was. He was in that Logan film. Yeah, looking after Patrick Stewart. That, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And that is weird because that wasn't, like a silly comedy character which is what he can do that was like proper acting you think mm. Mm, Stephen Merchant mm. <laughs> I don't know about that <laughs> I'll accept him as a silly comedy character but that's that's about it really did all right though did a perfectly good job so you said you said he's directing now what's it what's what's he well most recently you know as far as I know he did fighting with my family did that oh, one yes with Nick Frost but yeah I mean he's always been more of a behind the scenes guy I think he sort of fell into performing like acting, he did stand yeah. up and all that sort well, of like thing. Well, like you say, so. he was hardly in the office. He was only in one scene of the office, and he was obviously he's obviously just in one scene per show of extras. It's not he's not there yeah. to act, is he? Well, look, I th- so, okay, so uh, well, I think we've we've covered Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant at some length there. So it'll probably be a, a long time before we get to one of those other things. Yeah, but I'm glad we I'm glad we have talked about them. I think t- we talked about extras today, but you know, The Office did change things. The Office was one of those um, mm-hmm. hinge points in British sitcom. You know, Gervais and Merchant have absolutely had a huge influence on the last 20 years of sitcom. 
and 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 what's really remarkable is how much that spread to America. And they they have they're not just huge co- British mm. comedy stars; they're international comedy stars. Like, yeah. and that's. I, I don't know why that is because I know there's always like the odd BBC show that suddenly becomes you know a bit of a cult hit in America, but this was a different thing. It was they really did change the world of comedy, and it's it's remarkable. Yeah, and that's true. Yeah. Fair play on. Well, that is all we've got time for this week. We've, we've dealt with extras, and that is the last one of this series as well. Mm. Uh, so we'll have a little hiatus, but of course, as usual, we will be putting out some material in between the series, and uh, we'll do some forgotten sitcoms. Uh, you've done one on Rollover Beethoven, haven't you? I have, yeah. yeah. We've got a couple more lined up to do as well. Oh, we'll do a quiz, of course. We have to do a quiz. Uh, so look forward to all that keep keep in touch with us uh, between series but we will be back with more and in the meantime stay in touch with us at britcompod on twitter and instagram do check out our youtube channel that's british sitcom history where you can see all our forgotten sitcoms episodes there with full video accompaniment our podcast episodes are up there as well with extra video elements if you want to have a few clips thrown in as a bonus other than that we will see you next time and thank you very much for listening if you do enjoy the show rate and review us on itunes that's always a good thing to do that helps us kind of boost our profile a little bit we are three series in and we haven't even thought about like how do we increase our numbers or anything like that (laughs) just you know be nice you know if you want to give us a review that'd be lovely don't say up bad i don't want to see it (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much for listening and we'll see you all very soon Bye. Bye.